This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Degrazia Gallery in the Sun Museum. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation between multimedia artist An Tui Nguyen and curator Mariana Pegno, part of the current Tucson Museum of Art exhibition called 4 by 4 And before the Runaways, the Go-Go's, or the Bangles, there was the rock group Fanny. Their music is currently being rediscovered by a whole new generation. And I'll talk with drummer Alice DeBure about why that is happening. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A current exhibition at the Tucson Museum of Art takes an inclusive approach by asking four of their curators to each choose a contemporary artist that they admire and then present the four solo shows together as one. 4 by 4 removes the idea that there is a dominant narrative about life. It reminds us that the range of lived experiences is varied and nuanced. Throughout the month of June, you've heard conversations between these curators and artists, and now produced by Andrew Brown... Here's the final installment. I think as human beings, we all experience something so similar. Like we speak different languages, but we all trying to convey the same thing. Hi, my name is Antwin Nguyen, and uh, I am one of the four artists being included in the 4x4 exhibition at the Tucson Museum of Art. And my portion titled Thuy and the medium that I use in my work kind of spanning from photography to video performance and installation. And the focus of my work is about the experience of being immigrants in connection to home tradition country, like personal politics and cultural differences. I am Mariana Pegno. I'm the curator of community engagement here at the Tucson Museum of Art, and I'm one of the curators on 4x4. I actually knew Antwi before I knew she was an artist. We were both working as students at the Center for Creative Photography, so she was getting her undergraduate degree in photography, and I was getting my master's in art history. And the body of work that's on view here, I've been involved with since the beginning through conversations and kind of talking about locations and issues she's dealing with. A lot of these work on view right now, they are work that being created within the last 10 years. When you walk into the museum, Entwee's work is down the ramps. At the left against the wall right there are four photographs from the Boat Journey series and five leather boats that kind of represent this, this, this creature or figure that gets stuck on the land. As you walk down the ramp, you enter and see the Twee and Tee series, which is the newest, where she's boxing. The second to last series is Twee and Sand, and the final piece that you see is an altarpiece uh, from Twee and Rice. Different people who are looking at my work, they will totally have different response based on their cultural background, how they experience it to their life. But at least I would like the audience to look at my work and knowing that this is how she going through. And I think we all kind of going through what I go through in one way and the other. It's just externalized in a different way. 
it's presented in a really poetic way, right? Like it is um, not overt, not specific enough in locations that I think people can find this access point to be related to. I love that fact of push and pull between material. But that's what the whole series is about. Yeah, it is like emotionally being pushed and pulled away toward but and then never be able to be in that same place. We're and stuck. It's, yeah, right? it's in the boat journey too. And I think yeah. all of my work because that's how I feel. Your piece Tween T, I think, is like actually one of the hardest is like a hard piece right now, right? Like you're actually talking about this rise in hate and violence against Asian American and, and Pacific Islander communities. Uh, and it kind of comes out explicitly, right? Uh, sometimes we're not dealing with so current situations, um, but when we are, I think it takes a lot more work to prepare people or even just to think about what could come up from it. Yeah, because when I make that piece, it wasn't for that purpose yeah, at all. Yeah, it didn't start that way, it's right? It didn't start that way. It's all about the internal struggle or conversation that I have with yeah. myself because everything is not just externally, but I think the philosophy of my work is how am I dealing with the internal of, yeah. of myself. But you were literally shooting the punching parts, right? During yes. like yeah. right the violence in Atlanta yeah. and everything else. What led you to work with artists like myself, like a, a BIPOC artist? And myself here, I'm not talking about an individual, but it's more as a collective. Sure, so my role at the museum normally is kind of dealing more with engagement and programs and our inclusion and diversity initiatives. So thinking about developing programming here, I work a lot with immigrant and refugee audiences. So my PhD is on museum programming for refugees. Uh, we had just launched an idea plan for inclusion, diversity, equity, and access here at the museum. So in my role, I'm really interested in kind of thinking about migration and how we can be more reflective of the local community when trying to think about how I could represent that through kind of one artist's work, I wanted to both think about someone who has a strong tie to Tucson, um, but can also kind of represent this diaspora community. So Antwi came to mind. Um, and the more we were talking about different things with her work, it seemed like there was gonna be a shift after kind of this Twee and T piece. So I really felt like it was important to kind of represent and include this 10 year body of work um, within the space. All of those experiences we have in life, regardless of the geography where we come from and how different we are, it's all very similar to each other. Visual, art, creative writing, all of the art form and even like the right conversations, be able to activate that sense of mutual emotions um, to whoever you're talking to. Artist on Tween Wing talked with TMA Curator of Community Engagement, Mariana Pegno, and a story produced by Andrew Brown. You can see a video version of this story now on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook and Instagram pages. 4x4 will be on view at the Tucson Museum of Art through September 26th. You in the One of the things that helped me to get through the year 2020 was streaming documentaries. 
especially ones about obscure bands that actually proved to be very influential. Last month, I saw a trailer for Fanny, The Right to Rock. It's a Canadian-made documentary that right now is playing at film festivals all over the world and available through video on demand. It tells the story of four very soulful, talented musicians who, in the early 1970s, became the first full-time all-female rock band. Fascinated, I put the film on my to-watch list, and I started listening to Fanny's music online. I also secretly wished that I could one day find a Tucson resident who might have a similar story to tell. After seeing an online interview produced by the Women in Rock Project, I discovered that Alice DeBure, Fanny's drummer, actually lived in Tucson and not more than about three miles away from me. So I called her out of the blue one Saturday and I told her I wanted to do an interview. She very graciously said yes. And the conversation we had about a week later, plus some of Fanny's music, is what you're going to hear next. Born in Iowa, Alice DeBure is now 71 years old, and she's very active online with fans both old and new. I started playing drums in second grade in school band all the way through high school. And when I was a junior in high school, my parents divorced, and I felt real blindsided by that. There were four kids. I was the youngest. And um, I had my first sexual experience with a woman and realized that I was gay. Eventually, my mom found out, and not knowing what to do to help me, she put me in the psychopathic ward of the state hospital in Iowa City. And the day after I got out of that hospital, I was there for two weeks, and they finally said, just come and get her and be here when her world falls apart, because it will. I loaded my clothes into my drums and left home. My lover at the time, who was a woman who was uh, 10 years older than I was. And where were you two planning to go? California. Yep, we went to Sacramento. She had some relatives there, um, but that did not last long. We ended up cleaning apartments, and then if you clean the apartment, you could stay in it overnight. You know, eventually we found a one-bedroom above a garage, and that's where I lived when I met June and Jean. So it was an ad they had in a music store that I answered. I auditioned and got the job. Were you confident in your skills as a musician, Alice, when you arrived in California? Was it daunting to start breaking into the music scene? No. It wasn't. I was confident in high school. I had a band the last half of my junior year and my senior year. It was a trio, and we played around Iowa. So I knew I could play. I have to say that the song that I have bonded with the most since I discovered Fanny about one week ago, as of the time of this recording, is I Need You, Need Me. The first line of that song just cut me like a knife. I tried to call you, but they'd taken out your phone. Are you all right? I immediately imagined someone who was hospitalized. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That song is probably, and actually most of Nikki's songs are enigmas, if you will. (laughs) Um, Nobody knows. I've got a podcast that I'm doing now called the Get Behind Fanny podcast, and we just were talking about Nikki on the last podcast, she was genius level, smart. Um, She wrote all of her songs in her head and would come to rehearsal with pretty much a finished song in her head. But to try and 
say now, 50 years later, what that song was about or who the song was about or where she got the idea. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. I, I love the Mother's Pride album, and it is probably the least known of the four Fanny albums. That was I Need You, Need Me, featured on Fanny's fourth studio album called Mother's Pride from 1973. The band's lineup consisted of sisters, Jean Millington on bass and June Millington on guitar. Their family had immigrated from the Philippines in the 60s. The Millington sisters still perform together today, and their story is the focus of the documentary The Right to Rock. Composer Nikki Barkley played keyboards, with Alice DeBure behind the drums. Everybody sang and did some percussion. The band's first three albums were produced by hitmaker Richard Perry for Reprise Records. That included 1972's Fanny Hill, which was recorded at the Beatles' Apple Studios in London. What made the Mother's Pride album different from the three before it was that the band elected to work with Todd Rundgren who had a reputation for being a difficult but visionary musician and producer. We wanted somebody um, different from Richard. We wanted actually to have a bigger voice in the mixing of our sound. And Todd said, yeah, sure, I'm your guy, blah, 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 you know. But when it came to mix the album, he locked us out of the control room. So it was just another, you know, male, I know better than you do, little lady sit down and we were so tired of it we knew what we wanted to sound like i don't think any producer ever got a true live sound from us richard perry sweetened everything the first album is probably the most raw but the energy that we had in live performances is something that was never captured on record Well, luckily, fans today can find a couple of really deep cuts on YouTube. There's a a version of uh, Ain't That Peculiar um, Mm -hmm. that is largely, you know, unproduced. It's it's a pretty raw tape, and you sound great. That whole Beat Club performance, that was the first time that we recorded on that German television show. And they were so far ahead of American television shows. They mic'd us as if we were in a recording studio. And then they pretty much just turned the cameras on, and we played for, I think it's about 35 minutes long. That footage is what people are discovering, you know, over the last two and a half, three years. Why don't I know about these guys? These guys are great. You know, these gals, whatever. (laughs) We are rolling. You got it.
Alice as a young woman at that time of life, what was going to Europe like? Did you feel the difference? Oh, gosh, yes. We were treated like rock stars in the UK. I mean, at first, we had to get past the name, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, let's talk about that for a second, because to a lot of Americans, Fanny is just kind of a silly word for a butt. Or a woman's name. Or a woman's name, sure. It almost made me think that you would have had trouble getting on the BBC, getting played on the radio in, in the UK. But it turns out you actually had better success there. Yes, we did. And I have to say, there are just fellas that make comments on the YouTube videos that we have heard for 50 years. Oh, well, you know, the name means something totally different <laughs> in the UK. It's, uh, it means the exact opposite. And we had no idea you know, that it meant something different in the UK. And it was actually Richard Perry's grandmother's name. But was yeah. she English? No, obviously <laughs> not. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> but the UK uh, welcomed us. If you were really, really big in the United States, you had a really hard time winning over a UK audience um, because they welcomed bands that weren't huge, and just raved. You know, we were, we had so much press and so much visibility and fans that followed us from concert to concert, you know. And it was it was really cool. The three tours that I did there were heaven, heaven. Much better than touring in the United States. Well, did you think about staying? No. Why not? I didn't. Um, well, I had a girlfriend back in the United States. My life was back in the United States. I never thought about it, quite frankly. Hmm. You know, when I finally quit the band in November of 73, then I did not have the means to get back there. You know, we didn't make any money at all. You yeah. know, I think we finally ended up getting paid $25 a night, you know, towards the end in the last maybe two tours or something. Uh. Yeah, it was a rough life. And God love people who want to try and make it in this business, but it is hard. You had so much happen in such a short period of time. I mean, when you just mentioned you left at the end of 73. We signed the contract in 69. The first album came out in 70, and we released one every year after, 70, 71, 72, and 73. Mm -hmm. We were the first all-girl, all-female band to sign a multi-album deal with a major label and record full albums of original material with some covers. There were other girl bands before us, but mm -hmm. they mostly released singles and didn't do a lot of touring. And we toured nonstop. Toured, rehearsed, record, tour, rehearse, record. That was pretty much it. Well, you, you touched on the issues that you had with your producers, but within the group itself, was Fanny a democratic unit? There was no standout leader. June and Nikki were at loggerheads. I mean, it was like oil and vinegar. And Jeannie and I acted mostly as mediators between the two. Mm. Nikki was incredibly difficult to work with, such a great musician, but she was really hard to deal with. But she wrote such great songs. I loved playing Nikki songs. You know, they were rock and roll. June was more, you know, ballad kind of softer songs, as was Jeannie. But uh, Nikki's songs were rock and roll, and that's what Fanny was, and that's what I liked, was playing rock and roll. Tell me about what uh, Nikki asked you for in terms of the drum work on the song Blind Alley. Oh, <laughs> well, 
she said she wanted me to sound like a freight train. She said, you know, like, like Keith Moon's drunken version of a freight train, you know. And so I came up with this on mostly on my toms, and I sounded like a freight train. And the, she gave me writing credit for the drum part. Unheard of these days, just for making a drum part, that's your job in the band, you know. told me that you were happy to talk because you think that what you did with the group was important. And I concur. Mm -hmm. Having this piece of history in your own life, have you ever found yourself giving advice to a young woman about music or art and following their muse because you had this experience where you were a rock star? Well, I don't think I was a rock star. I think you were a rock star. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you, but Fanny never made it big enough for me to feel like I could call myself a rock star. I had some absolutely fantastic years playing rock and roll music with a band that was uh, the first of its kind to do a lot of things. Um, And I have had the opportunity to talk to some other drummers, young women drummers mostly. And The basic thing I say is, if you love it, stick with it. If you don't, don't. Because it's only going to be good if you love it. Practice if you want to practice. Don't practice if you don't want to practice. Practice with the band. (laughs) Think about the music you're playing. You know, think about the part that you're adding to the overall picture that the band's song is trying to paint. Well, somebody who really liked the music of Fanny was David Bowie. Mm -hmm. His quotes follow you around. Yeah from the millennial issue of uh, Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, everybody uses that quote. And it's a nice quote. David Bowie was a great guy. Uh, We were playing Liverpool Stadium the night after he played, and we got to the hotel. The kitchen was closed. And he got them to not only open the kitchen so that we could have some food, but he did this 20-minute, half-hour, impromptu mime thing for us (laughs) while we were eating. I mean, he he was amazing. A really, really, really nice guy. And did he briefly date Gene Millington? Yes. Gene spent, oh, a few months with him easily in Europe at his chateau, I think, in France and then in London some. There were some pictures of them together. Yeah, she sang on Fame. Great. Yeah. Yeah, she dated him. And you're going to sit there and tell me that you never, ever felt like a rock star. Um, yeah. 
I am going to tell you that. Um, I look at my life now and I feel really blessed to have had those experiences, but I don't think of myself as a rock star now, as a former rock star. I'm just me. I had some really great experiences. There were times that, yeah, I was treated like a rock star and it felt good, but that was mostly management trying to make us feel like rock stars so that we would deliver that image to the public or the press so that they didn't have to guess, you know, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I've, I've always just been, I've, you know, I've been me. When I quit Fanny, I, I washed feral cats, for God's sake, you know, and worked in an answering service, you know. So I'm, I'm no, I'm just a, a human being yeah. <laughs> on the face of this planet. Thanks to Alice DeBure for the great conversation and the music. Through June 27th, the documentary Fanny, The Right to Rock can be found at frameline.org. It will head into wider video-on-demand release later this year. To listen to Alice's podcast and keep up with all things Fanny and their current generation of fans, you can visit fannyrocks.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to De Grazia Gallery and the Sun Museum for their support of Arizona Public Media.